Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. The concept of destiny can be both comforting and frightening. For some, the belief that their path is already charted can give a sense of drive and purpose. For others, it can make them feel hopeless with no control over their lives. In 1954, a middle-aged South African woman named Elizabeth Clarer was confronted with her destiny. Ever since she was a child, Elizabeth knew she was somehow connected to the cosmos, but she had no idea what was creating that bond. Now, an inexplicable force drew her to what was known as Flying Saucer Hill in the shadow of South Africa's Drakensberg Mountains. Elizabeth stood there for what felt like hours, waiting for a sign, any sign, of what had summoned her to this lonely hilltop. And then, she saw it. A sudden flash of light appeared in the bright blue sky. It was a bright ovular disk that seemed to move outside the laws of physics. It traveled gracefully through the sky without emitting any sound, and it was headed straight for Elizabeth. As the object approached, she could tell it was some sort of ship about 18 meters in diameter. It came to rest only a few feet away, hovering above the ground. The sudden displacement of air caused Elizabeth's ears to pop, but she remained where she was, rooted to the spot. There was someone watching her through one of the ship's three portholes. Elizabeth felt compelled to stare into the stranger's eyes. He appeared to be a tall, handsome man, and he was watching her back, his arms folded against his chest. Elizabeth waited with bated breath to see what this stranger would do. Even at a slight distance, his eyes held her under a hypnotic sway. Finally, there was the slightest movement. The man smiled, and Elizabeth smiled back. Are we alone? Have we been alone? Will we be alone? Stories of alien visitation have been ingrained in human history. 
Alien life may not be confirmed, but our obsession with it can't be ignored. Welcome to Extraterrestrial on the Parcast Network. I'm Bill. And I'm Tim. Every Tuesday, we visit the marvelous and strange stories about our encounters with beings from another world. We're aware that some of these tales may seem completely unbelievable. Others may seem all too real. But these stories shed light on human nature, human beliefs, and human psychology. And each story has garnered hundreds, if not millions, of true believers. And for that reason, we think they're worth exploring. Today, we're exploring the story of Elizabeth Clarer, a South African woman who claimed to have fallen in love with Aachen, an astrophysicist from the planet Meton in the Proxima Centauri system. This week, we'll tell the story of how Elizabeth came into contact with Aachen and their ensuing intergalactic romance. In next week's part two, we'll conclude Elizabeth and Aachen's story and investigate the details of Elizabeth's experience. Was it a real cosmic romance, or is there more than meets the eye? We'll delve into other accounts of Elizabeth's sightings and investigate how else they could be explained. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to Parcast.com slash merch for more information. From the moment she was born, Elizabeth Clarer was connected to the stars. She was born Elizabeth Ouellette on July 1st, 1910. It was the same year Halley's Comet made its once-every-75-years trip across Earth's sky. When Elizabeth was still an infant, her parents, Samuel and Florence, moved her and her three sisters to a farm in rural Natal in the shadow of South Africa's Drakensberg Mountains. Elizabeth had her first encounter with an extraterrestrial ship in 1917 when she was only seven years old. She was outside with her older sister, Barbara, feeding the family's puppies as the sun was setting behind the Drakensbergs. The purple-red summer sky was clear, and guinea fowl were calling to each other as they prepared to settle in for the night in a nearby wattle tree. But then, all at once, everything went silent. Simultaneously, Elizabeth and Barbara's eyes were drawn to the sky and to the mysterious object that appeared over the mountains. The circular object appeared to be some sort of advanced vehicle. Elizabeth thought it must be a spaceship from another planet. Even though she was young, she knew it was beyond the scope of human technology. The ship emitted a clear blue-white light and began to approach the girls, who stood rooted to the spot as the puppies hightailed it into their kennel. Suddenly, another object appeared on the horizon. This new meteor-like object's pockmarked surface glowed bright orange-red as it ripped through the atmosphere, seemingly hurtling straight at the young girls. The spaceship seemed to sense the danger. It changed its course to head off the fiery planetoid. The second object's course began drifting to the north. Somehow, the spaceship was emitting some sort of invisible force to push the flaming object away from Elizabeth and Barbara. With both objects gone from the sky, the spell Elizabeth and her sister were seemingly under lifted, and they ran for the house to tell their parents what had happened. 
Samuel and Florence were seated under the house's wide veranda. The roof obscured their view of the sky, so they hadn't seen anything. Samuel listened to the girl's story with a gentle smile on his face. Once they were finished, he stood up and looked at the sky. There was no trace of the fantastic scene Elizabeth and Barbara had described. Samuel shrugged. He suggested the girls might have seen a meteor, but Elizabeth was certain of what she'd seen. She insisted that the first object was a spaceship that had come to save Earth from the second object, a terrible asteroid that was sent to destroy the planet. Samuel asked Elizabeth how she knew this, but she couldn't answer. Somehow, she just knew. Unfortunately, there's no official record of any major celestial events in South Africa around the time Elizabeth said she saw this incredible sight. But this doesn't necessarily mean Elizabeth made it up. She may very well have seen something, whether it be a meteor, an airplane, or an alien ship. Her family's farm was in a remote location, and it's entirely possible there weren't any other witnesses to Elizabeth's sighting. It's also important to consider that perhaps the momentousness of the event became exaggerated in Elizabeth's imagination. That night, Elizabeth was too excited to sleep. As she listened to her mother play Mozart in the drawing room, Elizabeth gazed at the sky through the open window. She couldn't help but wonder if she'd ever see the spaceship again. The next morning, Elizabeth told the Zulu farm manager, Ladam, what she and Barbara had seen. Unlike her parents, who tried to rationalize the event, Ladam believed Elizabeth wholeheartedly. Ladam told Elizabeth about his people's folklore, in which a mythological sky people were destined to return to Earth on a lightning bird with iridescent metal wings of blue and gold. The Zulu creation myth revolves around a sky god named Mbela Kange, who created humanity when he banished a young member of his tribe to Earth through a hole in the sky. In fact, the Zulu tribe's name translates directly to the people of the sky. The lightning bird, or Impundalu, is a mythological creature that is said to be sent by the sky god when he wants a new member for his heavenly tribe. Ladam was convinced Elizabeth was destined to join them. He pointed to a distant mountaintop where she would someday eventually meet the lightning bird and join the sky people. Ladam's stories fascinated Elizabeth. She would sit for hours on end listening to him spin his tales. She was entranced by the idea that she would someday join these legendary sky gods. A few months after she saw the spaceship, seven-year-old Elizabeth was sitting in the garden listening to one of Ladam's stories when the sky suddenly grew dark. Seemingly out of nowhere, a menacing black cloud appeared in the eastern sky, heading for Elizabeth's farm. As the wind began to whip around them, a tornado emerged from the bottom of the cloud. As the tornado approached the farm and its helpless inhabitants, the mysterious spaceship appeared once again. Its bright shining light stood in stark contrast to the dark cloud. The ship stationed itself directly above Elizabeth's farm, guarding it from the tornado. It seemed to push the tornado's pulsating funnel away from the house in a battle of technology versus nature. After what seemed like an eternity, the tornado passed over Elizabeth's head, finally touching down in a pine tree grove a short distance away before moving into the hills. 
With the danger past, the ship once again sped into the distance. It was an experience Elizabeth would never forget. Ladam had witnessed the event too, and assured Elizabeth it was indeed the lightning bird he'd told her about. The rest of Elizabeth's childhood passed rather uneventfully. She spent her time in peaceful bliss, riding horses and studying music. After finishing grade school around 1927, A 17-year-old Elizabeth moved to Florence, Italy for university, where she studied art and music. But she remained captivated by her encounters with the strange spaceships she had as a child. She couldn't help but look up into the heavens and wonder if she'd ever see it again. Pushed by her fascination with the skies, Elizabeth felt compelled to leave Italy to study meteorology at Cambridge University in the UK. After completing the program in 1932, she moved back to South Africa. Upon returning home, Elizabeth met and married a Royal Air Force pilot named Captain W. Stafford Phillips. She gave birth to a daughter, Marilyn, one year later in 1933. Though Elizabeth was busy with her new family throughout her early 20s, living in South Africa again made her more restless than ever. She couldn't hold back her hopes of seeing the spaceship once again. Stafford understood her love of the skies and taught Elizabeth how to fly in his Tiger Moth biplane. Nothing gave Elizabeth comfort like soaring through the clear blue skies. In the air, she felt an unmistakable connection with the ship, and though she couldn't see it, Elizabeth knew it was near. One day in 1937, Stafford and Elizabeth were flying from the coastal city of Durban to Baragwanath near Johannesburg. Stafford was piloting, with Elizabeth serving as the navigator. The weather was clear as they soared above the Drakensberg Mountains, where Elizabeth lived when she was young. As Elizabeth looked to the east, a bright blue-white sphere appeared off in the distance. It zoomed straight for the plane, seemingly on a direct collision course. Elizabeth tapped Stafford on the back of his neck to alert him. He turned his head just in time to see the sphere suddenly slow down, changing its color to a brassy yellow. It paced alongside the plane for a few moments, allowing Elizabeth to get a good look. She was convinced it was the same spaceship from her youth. It was a massive circular ship with a small dome rising out of the middle. The dome had three portholes, although Elizabeth couldn't make out if anyone was inside. Stafford launched into evasive maneuvers, but the ship easily matched them, constantly remaining at the same distance. It almost seemed like it was playing a game. After a little while, the ship flipped over on its axis, rose into the air, and disappeared in a flash of white light. The moment it disappeared, Elizabeth was consumed with a feeling of deep loneliness. She knew she shared a deep connection with whoever or whatever was in that ship, but she couldn't explain what it was. Upon landing in Baragwanath, Stafford made a report of what he and Elizabeth had seen to the Air Force headquarters in Pretoria. They had Stafford and Elizabeth come in for questioning, but Elizabeth decided not to say anything about her mysterious connection with the ship. She knew they wouldn't be able to understand. But Elizabeth did soon get the chance to try to learn more about this mysterious connection. In 1937, a few months after this latest encounter, 
She accompanied Stafford to his new assignment at the de Havilland Experimental Flight Center in England. While Stafford was testing out experimental airplanes to combat the growing Nazi threat, the RAF had Elizabeth use her expertise as a meteorologist to study aerial anomalies. Elizabeth's work caught the attention of Air Chief Marshal Hugh Dowding, who she affectionately referred to as Chief. The Chief was an open-minded man and a keen spiritualist. He had heard about Elizabeth and Stafford's encounter with the ship during their flight from Durban to Baraguanath and was eager to hear more. One evening, the Chief summoned Elizabeth and Stafford to his office so he could hear about their experience firsthand. Unlike the skeptical officers in Pretoria, Elizabeth knew the chief would listen to her without any judgment. She decided she could share every detail of the various encounters she'd had with the spaceship over the years. Once Elizabeth finished telling her stories, the chief leaned back in his chair, lost in thought. After a moment, he nodded. He believed Elizabeth. Her sighting lined up with other extraterrestrial reports he'd been following. The chief was fascinated by strange balls of light called Foo Fighters that Allied and Axis Air Force pilots were seeing in the sky. He was convinced they were extraterrestrial in origin and was desperate to understand more about them. The chief asked Elizabeth to continue researching the mysterious craft. She agreed with zero hesitation. Coming up. Elizabeth learns more about the UFO sightings in the UK and South Africa. Now, back to the story. In 1943, Elizabeth and her husband, Stafford, received transfer orders to return to South Africa after living for six years in England. Elizabeth was overjoyed. Not only was she eager to return home, but she also harbored hope that she'd be able to reconnect with the mysterious spaceship. The couple was stationed at an airbase in Cape Town, but Elizabeth yearned to return to the Drakensberg Mountains. She knew the ship would never come to this crowded metropolis. One day, shortly after their return to South Africa, Elizabeth was sitting at her desk, gazing out the window at the cloud-shrouded Table Mountain. She was daydreaming of home when a ringing telephone broke her out of her reverie. A fire had broken out in one of the hangars. Elizabeth was ordered to evacuate, but her mind raced to her husband. All flights were grounded that day, and she was certain Stafford would have been in the hangar working on his plane. Without a second thought, Elizabeth raced out of her building and to the hangar. Sure enough, Stafford was there, valiantly trying to save a plane from the all-consuming fire. She ran to her husband's side as they pushed the plane away from the hangar. But then... A gas tank exploded. Elizabeth was flung to the ground as a dark cloud enveloped her senses. The next thing she knew, Elizabeth was waking up in a hospital bed. As she drifted in and out of consciousness, Elizabeth suddenly felt a cool, refreshing breeze on her cheeks. Elizabeth opened her eyes and realized she was no longer in the hospital. She was sitting in a field of lush, emerald grass atop a hill that overlooked a dark blue sea. She had no idea where she was, but she knew something for certain. It wasn't Earth. As Elizabeth gazed out over the expansive waters, a familiar sight came into view. 
A beautiful circular craft glinted in the sunlight, coming towards her. But before it could approach, Elizabeth was back in her hospital bed. Given her injuries, it's extremely possible this vision was a hallucination or intense dream brought on by medication. But Elizabeth believed it was something greater. Elizabeth's vision gave her the strength to make it through the difficult recovery process. However, while Elizabeth did make a full recovery, her marriage to Stafford did not. Shortly after being discharged from the hospital, Elizabeth and Stafford divorced sometime between 1944 and 1945. We know very little about how their marriage ended, but divorce wasn't an easy process at the time. Until 1979, South African courts could only grant a couple a divorce in the case of adultery or malicious desertion, which is when a spouse abandons his or her partner with the intent of ending a marriage. We don't know which reason Elizabeth and Stafford filed as the cause for their divorce, but it's easy to imagine that Elizabeth's growing obsession with the mysterious spacecraft and whoever was inside it was part of the breakdown in their relationship. However, Elizabeth soon found herself in a new relationship, and she married an engineer named Paul Clarer in 1946. Three years later, at age 36, she gave birth to a son, David. But her marriage to Paul had problems as well. They divorced shortly after David's birth. After the divorce, Elizabeth took every opportunity she could to return to the Drakensberg Mountains, where her older sister May had taken over the family farm. Despite her best efforts, Elizabeth was unable to make contact with the spaceship, but she didn't give up hope that it would return. In 1954, 44-year-old Elizabeth was living in Johannesburg when May called her on the phone with exciting news. The Zulus in the area had reported seeing the mythical lightning bird that the farm manager Ladam had told Elizabeth about during her youth. Elizabeth knew there was no time to waste. She grabbed David and her daughter Marilyn, and along with the family dogs, they sped off in Elizabeth's trusty MG automobile. Upon arriving at the farm, Elizabeth left the children and the dogs with May and set off alone on foot on a three-mile journey to the towering hilltop known as Flying Saucer Hill. Standing alone on the hill, she knew deep in her heart that the ship would appear. And it did. As the ship hovered in front of her, Elizabeth and the mysterious being inside the ship locked eyes and smiled at each other. Elizabeth felt faint, but it wasn't out of fear. It was love. An eternity passed within a single moment. Eventually, the ship slowly began to rise again into the air, and with a flash, it was gone. After the ship disappeared, Elizabeth sat on the ground and contemplated what had just happened. Something in her heart told her she wasn't yet ready to meet the man inside the ship. It was a lot to grasp, and if she met him too soon, her mind might not be able to handle it. Elizabeth closed her eyes. The image of the man's enchanting gaze seared into her brain. Her heart was full of deep, everlasting love. She knew he'd be back soon, and this time she'd be ready for him. After Elizabeth's encounter with the ship atop Flying Saucer Hill, 
The days passed in slow agony as she waited for its return. 1954 to 1955 to 1956. 18 months passed until May called Elizabeth once again with news that the Zulus had seen the lightning bird in the sky. Elizabeth returned to the farm without delay, and the next morning, she set off for Flying Saucer Hill. It was a long walk, and the brisk mountain winds whipped at her clothes. But she was undaunted, buoyed on by the warm love in her heart. The ship was already waiting for Elizabeth as she crested the hill. A tall man was standing beside it. Elizabeth's heart leaped in her chest, beating furiously. Without a second thought, she ran straight to him. When Elizabeth arrived by his side, the man picked her up by the waist and swung her up on the ship's hull so they were eye to eye. As they gazed at each other, the man asked Elizabeth if she was afraid, but as she looked into his clear gray eyes, she felt only love. Without another word, the man took Elizabeth into his arms and carried her into the ship. Though he appeared to be in his 60s, he was incredibly strong. He introduced himself as Aachen, a scientist from a far-off solar system. Elizabeth couldn't take her eyes off of Aachen. She was entranced by his grave yet tender face and his beautiful golden hair. He was pale and six feet tall, a far cry from the stereotypical little green men. Elizabeth couldn't help but fear that her formal, reserved, English-style upbringing would create too much of a rift with Aachen, who she could tell was completely uninhibited in his approach to relationships. Sensing her thoughts, Aachen reassured Elizabeth that he loved her just the way she was, and the ship gently lifted into the sky. Elizabeth marveled at its artistic simplicity. It was controlled with a simple panel consisting of push buttons and maximized for comfort, a far cry from the Spartan conditions human astronauts still face today. As they soared through the air, Aachen confided that although he appeared to be about 60 years old, he had actually been alive for centuries, but never had a mate. The moment Elizabeth was born, her energy had called to him from across the stars. Although he knew it would be many years until they could be together, he vowed to protect her until Elizabeth was old enough to be in a relationship and her mind was prepared to grasp the reality that extraterrestrial life existed. Finally, Aachen gathered Elizabeth into his arms and they shared their first kiss. A magical electric sensation coursed through Elizabeth's body. She instantly knew she and Aachen were destined to be together. Aachen admitted that his people rarely mated with humans, usually only doing so to infuse his race with new blood. But there was something different about Elizabeth. She was no ordinary human, and something inexplicable had drawn Aachen to her. As they rose higher into Earth's atmosphere, Elizabeth grew worried for a moment. Her children were still down there, and they still needed their mother. She was afraid what would happen to them if she never returned. Aachen sensed her nervousness and told Elizabeth not to worry. He was taking her on a short trip to his mothership to become more acquainted with his people's history and way of life, and would bring her back to the top of Flying Saucer Hill before anyone knew she was missing. During their journey to the mothership, Aachen explained some of the complex science behind their technology. 
Their ships were created by converting pure energy into physical substance, which is how they could be built so smoothly without any plates or rivets. They were enveloped by an electromagnetic field, which allowed them to fly silently and make maneuvers that seemed outside the laws of physics. His people were able to travel vast distances through space because this electromagnetic field allowed them to manipulate the harmonics of light to travel nearly instantaneously from one place to another in their mothership. Elizabeth was eager to see this incredible feat of technology, so Aachen whisked Elizabeth into the mothership's finely appointed interior where others of Aachen's race awaited them. Elizabeth met Aachen's brother, Hobbin, who greeted her as if she was an old friend. They chatted over refreshments consisting of fresh salads and fruits. Elizabeth marveled over how much energy this light meal gave her. Aachen explained that his people were able to grow their food right there on the mothership, and these plants gave them all the nutrition they needed. Once they were done eating, Aachen took Elizabeth to the Electric Mirage, a sort of hologram that showed her scenes from his people's history. Elizabeth was shocked to learn that Aachen's people had actually originated on the planet Venus. Unlike our present time, Venus used to be a lush planet full of life. But after flourishing on Venus for eons, his people had to abandon it. The sun's corona was expanding, and its lethal radiation threatened to snuff out their civilization if they didn't evacuate. Luckily, they were sufficiently advanced enough to leave Venus behind and settled on Earth and Mars, which was also capable of sustaining life at the time. For a time, they were able to live peacefully on the planets and continued to expand their technology. However, Latent radiation from the sun had a negative impact on some of their minds, and both planets fell into patterns of destruction. Those who were unaffected were able to leave Earth and Mars, but those who stayed on Earth destroyed all traces of their technology, while the fighting between the people on Mars turned that planet into the uninhabitable husk it is today. Eventually, Aachen's people settled in the Alpha Centauri system, approximately 4.37 light-years away from our solar system. Elizabeth asked Aachen if the planet she had seen when she was in the hospital was where his people lived now, and he nodded. Aachen revealed that Elizabeth, unlike most humans, had retained his people's race memory. Imbued with their power, she was able to perceive things most people couldn't and maintained a connection with Aachen's people through time and space. Once Elizabeth sufficiently understood the history of Aachen's people, it was time to return her to Earth. Aachen had to undertake a dangerous scientific expedition to observe a supernova and wanted to make sure Elizabeth was safe. Aachen brought Elizabeth back to the top of Flying Saucer Hill. As the ship landed, he drew her close. He reassured her that he'd be back for her soon. With a gentle kiss, they turned away from each other. Aachen's ship soared back into the sky and disappeared in a flash of light. But he wouldn't be gone for long. Coming up, Elizabeth's later visits from Aachen and the danger they put her in. Now back to the story. Night fell as Elizabeth made her way back to the farm, her heart aching for Aachen. The next morning, she awoke, worried for a moment that it had all been a dream. But as she recalled the events from the day before, 
Elizabeth knew it was all too real. If anything was a dream, it was her life on Earth. Her true reality was with Aachen. Later that 1956 morning, Elizabeth took her sister May to the top of Flying Saucer Hill. The grass was flattened from where the ship had landed. Many of the local Zulus were gathered there as well to celebrate the arrival of the mythical sky people. Though they were in their 40s, this moment brought Elizabeth and May the same sense of wonder as hearing Ladam's stories of the lightning bird in their childhood. Back at the farmhouse, Elizabeth sent a dispatch to the chief back in England to tell him what had happened. He was ecstatic and told her he was coming to South Africa immediately. The chief was one of the key members of the Flying Saucer Working Party, an English task force that had been established in October 1950 to research the flying saucer phenomenon that had begun a few years prior. Ultimately, the Flying Saucer Working Party's final report concluded in 1951 that UFOs can be explained as misidentifications of ordinary objects or phenomena, optical illusions, psychological delusions, or hoaxes. However, five years later, the chief remained steadfast in his belief that UFOs were extraterrestrial in nature and continued to seek evidence of their existence. During the chief's stay with Elizabeth, the two of them spent hours atop Flying Saucer Hill with a South African Air Force plane circling overhead. But Aachen's ship didn't show itself. With others drawn to the area in hopes of seeing an alien, Elizabeth knew he wouldn't come. While Aachen was happy to reveal himself to Elizabeth, he remained wary of other humans. After the chief returned to England, Elizabeth went back to Johannesburg. There was no reason to stay at the farm. She knew that she'd be able to sense when Aachen had returned. Word had spread of Elizabeth's incredible story. Upon her return to the city, Flying saucer enthusiasts swarmed Elizabeth with questions, but she was reluctant to give them any information. She felt many of them were driven by ego and cared more about the limelight than the truth. When Elizabeth refused to give out any major details, she started to receive threatening phone calls and letters. Fearing for her and her children's safety, she requested police protection and an ex-officer was sent to keep her family safe. Unfortunately, there's no official records or contemporary articles to help us determine if Elizabeth really was in any danger. But if she truly believed she was in harm's way, it's not inconceivable that the police might send someone to make sure she was safe. But someone else was concerned for her safety. According to Elizabeth's autobiography, Aachen's ship appeared over Johannesburg sometime in 1958. The Air Force scrambled jets, but they were unable to reach the altitude of Aachen's ship. As thousands of people watched the skies, Elizabeth's heart leaped with joy. The powerful mental connection she felt with Aachen had returned with his ship. This time, there is some evidence to back up Elizabeth's claim, although it's tenuous at best. The 1958 chronology of UFO sightings by a UFO society called the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena says that on April 11, 1958, an airport instrument inspector and others watched a UFO arc back and forth above Johannesburg. 
we can't confirm if the South African Air Force really did scramble any aircraft, but Elizabeth knew Aachen was sending her a message and she sped back to the farm with her son, David, who was now nine. They arrived on the edge of a massive storm which kept any curious onlookers from swarming to the area. The next morning, the sun broke through the clouds. Elizabeth left David with May and hastened to Flying Saucer Hill. Aachen was waiting for her. She jumped into his arms and they entered his ship. But they weren't alone. An Air Force helicopter hovered nearby, although Aachen's ship was still out of sight. Elizabeth was nervous. Would they be discovered? Would Aachen's people be forced into war with humanity? But her fears were for naught. With a look of mild annoyance, Aachen pressed a button and the ship vibrated for a moment before disappearing. It was only a temporary fix. If the helicopter came any closer, it could be harmed by the force field emitted from Aachen's ship. To be safe, Aachen flew the ship to May's farm. As they stepped off the ship, May stood in the house's doorway, a look of shock on her face. She had believed Elizabeth, but some things have to be seen to be truly believed. We'll have to believe Elizabeth's word that May met Aachen. At the time, May never made any statements about her sister's alien lover, and by the time Elizabeth's autobiography was released in the 1970s, May had sadly already passed away. Whether or not May ever met Aachen, she was more than willing to let Elizabeth stay at the farm whenever she desired, and at this moment, she knew her sister needed her help. With Elizabeth safely returned to May's farm, Aachen told her to rendezvous with him again the next morning and departed. His timing was perfect. Moments later, the Air Force helicopter landed where Aachen's ship had just been. Although May didn't want to let them in, she had little choice. The officer asked Elizabeth for any information relating to the flying saucer, but she declined to say anything, claiming she was too tired. The officers didn't push the matter and bade her a good night. The danger had passed for the moment. The next morning, Elizabeth returned once again to Flying Saucer Hill. This time, there was nobody to interrupt her rendezvous with Aachen. He took her into his arms and they entered the ship, taking to the air. It was April 1958, and after a confirmed UFO sighting, Elizabeth Clarer boarded a spaceship with Venusian astrophysicist Aachen. Aachen landed the ship atop Kathkin Plateau, high in the Drakensberg Mountains. He presented Elizabeth with a beautiful ring made of silver and green enamel with a giant stone set in the middle. Aside from being a token of his love, he said it would allow them to maintain their telepathic bond for the rest of their lives. Elizabeth was overcome with joy. She had never doubted that Aachen truly loved her, but here was physical proof of it. Aachen gently placed his hand under her chin, tilting her lips up to meet his. Elizabeth surrendered to his touch. Without another word, Aachen picked her up and carried her to a raised platform by the ship's curved wall. Lying together on its luxurious softness, they finally consummated a love that reached across the stars. The next morning, Aachen landed the ship once again atop Flying Saucer Hill, but he couldn't stay long. 
He explained that although the ship could be cloaked from the naked eye, it could still be tracked via satellite and radio. He revealed that at that very moment, the Russians and Americans were attempting to track his location. According to Aachen, powerful human governments such as the United States and the Soviet Union were desperate to acquire his people's technology, but they were deemed unfit for such powerful knowledge. Humanity's warlike tendencies meant that the technology of Aachen's people wouldn't be safe in their hands. Not only would humanity probably destroy itself, but it could pose a threat to other galactic societies as well. Elizabeth understood there was no time to dawdle. She quickly changed back into her clothes, and they stepped off the ship to say their farewells for the time being. Although it had barely been a day, Elizabeth knew she was pregnant with Aachen's child. Some might say that at the age of 49, it was a miracle for her to be pregnant, but Elizabeth knew it was fate. When the time was right, Aachen would return for her so she could give birth on Aachen's home planet of Meton. After one final tender kiss, he returned to his ship and it once again disappeared in a flash of light. Elizabeth decided it was safer for her to stay at the farm, as she was worried about what might happen to her if she went back to Johannesburg. She couldn't fathom the kind of danger she could be in if she returned to the city and word got out that she was pregnant with a half-alien child. Cooped up inside the farmhouse, in the summer of 1958, Elizabeth longed for the freedom she once had. No longer could she speed down the road in her sporty MG, the wind whipping at her hair. She couldn't even go to Flying Saucer Hill to meditate on her bond with Aachen. She knew she would be watched if she ventured there. One morning, as Elizabeth gazed out at the rolling grasslands beyond the farm, she felt an odd tingle in her head. Words formed in her mind without knowing how they got there. Back to Kathkin. Go back to Kathkin upon the high plateau. Once again, Aachen was reaching across the vast depths of space to touch her mind. She could sense the urgency in his message. Elizabeth knew she was no longer safe at the farm and needed to leave post haste. Located on a plateau within a massive nature preserve, Kathkin Peak would offer Elizabeth and Aachen a safe place to meet. Its rugged heights were impossible to access by car, and it would be extremely difficult for an aircraft to fly by its cloud-shrouded peak. In the early hours of the morning, Elizabeth set off on horseback with her nine-year-old son David and a Zulu groom. The air was clear, and the going was easy at first as they crossed the rolling grasslands at the foot of the mountainous plateau. Elizabeth was glad to be riding under the cover of darkness. Otherwise, her snow-white horse, Celine, could have been spotted from miles away. However, ascending Kathkin's steep slopes in the dark would be too dangerous, so they took refuge in a tiny hostel at the foot of the peak. In the early dawn, they rode single file up the steep winding path up the mountain, arriving at another high plateau just as the sun began to bathe the lands below in a beautiful golden light. Suddenly, something spooked David's horse, and it almost unseated him in its frantic attempt to escape whatever threat it sensed. Luckily, David was a skilled horseman and was able to soothe his horse before either of them got hurt. A moment later, 
the source of the horse's fear was revealed as Aachen's ship appeared in a shimmer of light. Elizabeth's heart skipped a beat. She knew they were safe. David and the groom could sense that Elizabeth and Aachen desired a private moment, so they went off at a distance to feed the horses while Elizabeth and Aachen spent the morning together. Elizabeth's fatigue melted away as she rested in Aachen's arms. It seemed that their baby could sense his presence too. As they sat together on the high mountain plateau, Aachen placed his hand on Elizabeth's belly and she felt their child stir for the first time. She immediately knew she would give birth to a son. Aachen assured Elizabeth that she'd be safe now from prying eyes until he came to fetch her for their child's birth. He would watch her from the ship and intervene if there was any danger. He lifted her back onto her saddle and returned to his ship, which disappeared in its customary flash of light. Elizabeth, David, and the groom descended the mountain, stopping at the bottom to let the horses drink at a clear, gurgling stream. But something didn't feel right. Aachen had promised Elizabeth she'd be safe, but she was overtaken by a sense of unease. What if someone had tracked her to the top of the mountain? Suddenly, a dark, gray, metallic spaceship appeared above them, touching down on the windswept plateau. Elizabeth and her companions ducked into a small hollow in the rock wall, obscured by a low bush. She hoped against hope that Aachen's ship was still above them, keeping them safe from these mysterious invaders. The strange ship sat there for a moment, dull and dark. It was a menacing, stark contrast to the beautiful, reflective surface of Aachen's ship. Everything about it was a crude imitation of Aachen's elegant vessel. It was a metal sphere, but unlike Aachen's ship, it was held together with large, circular rivets. A tripod of sturdy legs supported it with guidance jets set around its perimeter. After what seemed like an eternity, a circular hatch opened on top of the ship. It reminded Elizabeth of the hinged lid of a trapdoor spider's lair, but no predators emerged. A deep silence hung in the air. It seemed as though the entire plateau held its breath in anticipation of what would emerge from the ship's metallic depths. Finally, two human men appeared through the hatch. They took in the fresh mountain air, apparently glad to be out of the ship's cramped interior. But then, the two astronauts spun around. Elizabeth's horse stood on the path, not comprehending the need for secrecy. Her bridle and saddle made it clear that she wasn't a wild animal either. The lead astronaut pulled out a small, tube-like weapon and aimed it straight for the horse. Elizabeth knew she had to act or risk the life of her beloved horse. Elizabeth knew there wasn't enough time for Aachen to help her. She was on her own. Next week on Extraterrestrial, we'll hear the rest of Elizabeth's story. Will she and Aachen find happiness, or is she doomed to be the test subject for a nefarious government? And can any of her experience with Aachen be believed? Or is it just a fantastical, made-up story? Next week, we'll dive deeper into history and Elizabeth's account and the search for alternate explanations. 
You can listen to Extraterrestrial and all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. We'll be back next week. Until then, don't forget to keep your eyes on the sky. Extraterrestrial was created by Max Cutler. It's a production of Cutler Media and part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Extraterrestrial is written by Alex Benedon and stars Bill Thomas and Tim Johnson.